Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Smooshy. Happy Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> happy Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It is a happy one today because today we get to talk about history and injustice and crack open that concept a little bit. I know, but my favorite part about it is how we're bringing it forward, which is transformation. I love that too. It's the only hope of the world. If we don't believe in transformation, how can we believe in evolution? Yeah. Well, I loved what you said to me that we really are responsible for transforming what we've inherited. Mm. There's so much that goes into that for me because, first of all, it's the notion that we inherit things. And there is definitely things that we inherit societally. For example, we've inherited racism and Mm -hmm. we've inherited inequality. And there's all these things that we've inherited because the people that came before us could only do so much or weren't able to completely transform it. So it's our responsibility to continue the transformation. But then there's also all the things that we inherit individually and through our DNA and through our families. And like you've said so many times before, none of us have come from the golden era. Mm. And so it's really our responsibility to transform all the, excuse my language, the shit that we've inherited mm-hmm. and turn it into something else. And yeah. when I look at it that way, then it becomes a little bit easier almost because I'm like, okay, well, this is an opportunity for me. And it's actually a privilege that I have that maybe my ancestors weren't afforded. And it gives me sort of a new perspective towards it. That's true. Well, first of all, I think that we don't really understand that the way evolution works is it's on our shoulders. It doesn't happen automatically. Every individual moves the whole species forward, potentially. Every person is potentially that catalyst. And actually, I remember um, as a child, listening to my friends talk about the biblical concept of the sins of the father will be passed on to the son. And they were arguing about the injustice of it and how could God allow that. And I remember when I heard that passage, I was excited. (laughs) I was like, that's so nice of those spiritual teachings to teach us like, oh, this is going to happen. So to me, it was like, we all inherited a boatload of things that are still raw and rugged and in darkness that we have yet to even look at, much less transform. Mm. And so I I always think of that phrase fondly uh, with gratitude because it tells us this is my watch. On my watch, I better look in my own ancestry and see what predispositions I inherited. And you know, it's funny how we understand it medically, 
we understand it could skip generations and it could repeat generations, but we have yet to embrace all that there is that we've inherited and have not unpacked. And actually, Sushi, you know the story you were just sharing with me this week that you found out about your maternal grandma? Mm-hmm. Would, would you share that? Because I think that's such an extraordinary example of recent history. And if you wouldn't mind sharing the story and also the impact it had on you. Yeah. Well, it was my grandmother's memorial this last week. Uh, She passed away maybe 12 or 13 years ago. And I'm actually wearing her pearls that I had gifted her that I inherited after she passed. But, um, It was crazy because we were all on a family Zoom and we were sharing stories about her. And one of my mom's cousins mentioned a marriage that my grandmother had had before she was married to my grandfather. Hmm. And I was kind of taken aback by this because I didn't know about this marriage. And so I called my mom the next day and I was like, my grandmother's name was Tuba, but we called her Maman. And I said, Maman was married? before Arajun, which was my grandpa. And my mom was like, you don't know the story? And I was like, no. So it turns out that my grandmother met the love of her life when she was 16. She met this man in the city that they grew up in, in Hamadan, which is in Iran, and madly in love with each other. The guy was really handsome and he was successful and he came from a good family and it seemed to have been a good marital match, but they were really fortunate because they actually had fallen deeply in love with one another. And they were married for about a year or so. And after a year's time, they found out that they couldn't have kids, that he was actually unable to give her children. So my grandmother's father was really kind of outraged about this and essentially forced them to separate. And so obviously they were both completely devastated to the point where both of them tried to take their own lives. My grandmother tried to commit suicide. She drank poison. (laughs) So she went into recovery and in order to distract her or to sort of take her away from the situation, they took her to Tehran, which was the main city some hours away and um, they had taken her because the Shah and the queen at the time were doing this thing where they ride around the city in their car and everybody kind of comes out of their businesses and their homes to wave at them. And while she was there, this man who is my grandfather sees her and develops a liking to her and so approaches her parents and asks for her hand in marriage. And my grandmother's parents approve and essentially arrange a marriage for my grandmother with this man that she's only seen one time in passing. And my grandfather was 20-some years older than my grandmother, so she was 18 at this time. He was 20-some odd years older and had four kids from a previous marriage, some of which were only a couple years younger than my grandmother. So she moved into this house where she had to take care of four children and a husband and some of his family that lived with them, Mm. who she had only met once. 
So anyway, I, you know, I called you, but I was just sobbing. I mean, even telling the story now kind of makes me really emotional because it made so much sense to me why she had the life that she had and why she felt the way that she did and why she had the disposition that she did. And, and um, I was so um, moved by that because I was like, no wonder I'm the way that I am because I feel like I have that in me. I inherited part of that. And, mm. you know, it's this thing we talk about, my body, my choice now. Mm. And I was so thankful that at least I had somewhat of a choice. And I was like, no wonder I waited so long to get married. And no wonder I was so anal about the process. And it's taken me so long to figure out whether I really want to have children or not, because it's so difficult making that decision for somebody like me who has the history that I come from, because I can't tell if I don't want to have kids because it's I'm rebelling against something or because I really don't want to. And so it's like this mm. deeply personal work that I have to do in myself to figure out what I really want and why without it being a reaction to my history, but a true representation of me and the life that I live in, who I am. And it's this sort of break with my what I've inherited essentially but it just really moved me. And then I thought about, wow, we all come from some version of this, especially women. You know, we all come from these deeply rich histories of really not having rights. Yes, that's our legacy. Our legacy goes back into our earliest stages of recorded history, like cave walls cave paintings, and might equals right mm. from the beginning. So we are just seeing the glimmerings of opportunities to be recognized. Of course, the feminine, that's half the population, has never actually been acknowledged as valuable. Not that it doesn't have value, but valuable for all that it is, rather than reproduction rather than for the benefit of others to profit or grow or, you know, I could go on and on about the limitations of our value. If you ask any female at any part of the planet, she already knows that. But it's not commonly processed or acknowledged as a species, much less the breakdown in each culture and their role of clearing out, you know, what I Think of as core lore, you know, the core mythologies that govern our thought processes and our perceptions and keep us locked in, for example, to racism. Racism isn't new. And why has it been that spiritual disease? Why has it roamed the earth this long? Mm. Why in the world would we evaluate the value of people based on the melanin in their skin? Mm. When will science catch up? Or I should say, when will we catch up? to science, you know, to understand that people have infinite capacities to acclimate to environments. That doesn't mean that's their exclusive value. You know, it's so strange you're saying that because my grandmother has a similar story because she grew up in Austria. And at that time during the wars, the borders changed constantly. And her parents 
married her off when she was 14, 15 to someone who was organically mentally disturbed and deficient, but he came from an exceptionally wealthy family. And they married her off because it would better the family. And the night of their wedding, before it was consummated, she ran away from home. Mm. And that was the end of that. And then they ended up in the United States, and then she was still quite young. Uh, When she met my grandfather, she said that it wasn't who was approved of by her mother because he didn't have means. But the man who did have means, the young man, also had to work. So that guy who was already engaged to my teenage grandmother said to my grandfather, listen, would you please watch over my girlfriend, my fiance, because I don't want anyone to steal her. (laughs) And so my grandfather would watch her at nights when he was working. And of course, that was a big mistake. My grandfather fell in love with my grandmother and vice versa. And they just decided to go against every possible view of that being a good match. No one approved of it. But they were, as I've shared with you before, such a happily married couple for all the days of their life. And it's so sweet, but I think it takes courage. And I also think that coming myself from legacies of victims, as I have that inheritance, that's my legacy. I come from populations of people who were on the run and victims. And I think it changes your mentality and you have to have a red flag that notifies you so that you don't enter a dynamic, whether it's business, personal, intimate, familial, where you can become that you are not like others. You will have that danger. Mm. And so whether we are victims or we are perpetrators, I love that we have the same work to do. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, whatever our parents and their parents didn't figure out to transform, this is why we are here now. Yeah. One thing that I could say is that I don't think it's a mistake that this whole thing with my grandmother came up for me now. And so that kind of makes it sort of more digestible in a way is like we don't have to transform everything at the same time. Mm. We're only given little morsels of like, I I don't think you even become aware of the information until it's time for you to transform that thing or until maybe it's applicable to you at that time. Do you think that there's some wisdom to that? I do. I feel like we need to figure out how to approach being more present in ourselves and our lives so it could become that awareness can come up. And the other thing that I feel is really lacking in societies, and when I say societies, I mean in the education process, in uh, becoming whatever you're going to become in your career or in relationships. I think what we're lacking is the concept of process. Mm. I think we're product-oriented, not process-oriented. Because obviously, product-based, production-based is for the outcome, which is going to be material. You know, you and I are always talking about spiritual implications in everyday life because I think we've all been reared 
to believe through the trickle of light that has come from the man-made dogmas that infiltrated into spiritual practices. And I think that that's poisoned people to understand that life is a spiritual thing. Mm. And that means we practice the art of our spirit every day. And I think if we were that way, now we could truly understand process. Mm. If I come from a legacy of alcoholism, and every generation before me has been an alcoholic, how do I go from inheriting the physical urge to drink into claiming freedom from it? And so I think if we were process-oriented, first of all, just like you're saying, oh, what a breath of fresh air, because you don't have to do it all right now. And I think that's so crucial. It makes me think in our Baha'i youth classes, there was this story about Abdul Baha, you know, the son of Baha'u'llah. And he had come to the United States and he's talking about the oneness of humanity and the equality of mankind. At that time in 1912, that was unheard of. And so this man came up to him and said, How could I? become this. And Abdu'l-Baha just smiled at him and he said, little by little, day by day. Mm. So that's what I think about. I think about process a lot. Like, how do I get from here to there? And how many steps does it take? Sometimes it's very ambiguous. Like when you are aspiring to create something new, do you always know what it's going to take to actually bear fruit? No. I always just look for the starting point. If I could find one place I can start. I mean, Mm -hmm. I always say I think it's much easier to move um, and to steer a moving car than it is a still one. And so Mm -hmm. if I just get moving in some direction, then I know I can turn around or I can change, but I just need to get moving on some kind of starting point. And if I have a clear starting point, that's even more of a gift. Smooshy, I love that. You know, it like gives you permission to just, no matter how bad things are, and if you're between a rock and a hard place, it gives you permission to like take the first step, mm-hmm. you know? Who knows what the second step will lead you to? Smooshy, can you think of how do we transform things? I mean, of mm. course, it's a process, but... I know for me, it really shifted my perspective when I thought about my spiritual practice, because for me, morning and night, um, where I go into myself and I, I talk to my creator and I work on things and I've been talking to my creator like he's my best friend lately, or it's my best friend. And I'll just say everything about my day and everything that I'm working on and doing. And I just sit quiet and wait and listen. And well, I'll say this, like if there's something that I'm working on or something that I'm dealing with, it's almost like I bring it and I ask for it to be transformed or to figure out how to transform it. So that's one tool I guess I've been using personally to figure out how to transform what I've inherited. But can you think of other things For sure. I mean, I can, but I also think not just 
tools for process and transformation are necessary. I think there's one step in between them that has to be incorporated. And if it were incorporated in the collective, then we could create like a stable stance for not just individuals, but society. Mm. So I totally adore your spiritual practice. And I participate in that practice. I make it very personal. But the piece that I feel is missing a lot in process and transformation is accountability. Mm. So whether you're on the perpetration side of things and you're ignorant and you're doing the same thing over and over and wondering why the outcome is the same, disappointment or disaster, I also think that when you're on the disappointed side, accountability is what sharpens the clarity of your lens. Then you can really find what you need to transform rather than just go in carte blanche and just be like, transform my whole life, magic genie. Wow. So I think accountability comes from a process that's both personal, but also has the capacity to see things in the larger picture and what events took place that put you in that compromised historical position that you inherited. Mm. And you're like a quest. What process, what tools of process allow me freedom? Not freedom as in chaos theory, Mm -hmm. you know, freedom to do whatever I want to make me happy. Freedom to be what I am by design. And then that practice you're sharing, your intimate practice with the creator, also is a practice that must engender accountability. Hmm. I also think it's so important for you to define what the concept of creator is for you Mm. and make sure what you're worshiping is what's true to you and not something that you also inherited. Because (laughs) I realized in my early 20s that I was worshiping the God my mom worshiped and that God wasn't my God. Mm-hmm. And my mom feel like, first of all, views God as a man and views God as this like, sort of like wag your finger, mm-hmm. judgmental sort of. So I would find myself not praying or not being able to really be in my spiritual practice if I felt guilty about something or mm-hmm. anyway, there's all these things where I was like, oh my God, I'm, I've been worshiping this false God. And it really made me go in and have very deep conversations with God and be like, who are you? What are you to me? Show yourself to me. And it was funny because I was really being pretty bold where I was like, show me, show me what you are to me because I don't know. And please increase my connection to you as you are, not what I think you are. That's the key, isn't it? Yeah. You're asking to be shown what is reality. Yes. And that was a huge shift in my life on its own because it really opened me up to my relationship with my creator, which is so personal. Like nobody is supposed to tell you what the creator is to you. And I feel like also we live in a society where 
people make you feel like you have to access God through something else or through somebody else. And it's not true for me. And really, that's where the concept for me of core lore kept popping up because I kept noticing not just me, but everyone has unconscious interpretations of beliefs of what the proverbial concept of God is, and none of it is true. And we have assimilated it into also not just our attraction, which creates fanaticism, Mm. but it's also reflected in our hidden beliefs. Oh, this happened to that person because they're being punished. Oh, this happened to that person. See, that's why you shouldn't do that. As if you know what the Creator has in store out of love and tender affection for the Creator's design, that human being. Right. And all the suffering we have here, we cause for each other, not the Creator. The Creator is constantly working through us to wake up to those patterns so we free ourselves from them and each other. Mm -hmm. It's beneficent. It's benevolent, not malevolent. Yeah. And we have to get rid of that so that humanity can come back and start to look at the new evolution, which has to be about being together. Yeah. I love what you just said because that's such an interesting way of thinking about it because I often hear people saying, well, if there was a God, why would there be so much poverty and why would there be so much this or that? And never thinking that we created that. We've created an artificial environment. Man has done that. Mm -hmm. And then we expect a God to be like a superhero, like to come in and just wash it away without any question. It's like, it's such an unrealistic expectation that we would be given all the tools, misuse them, and then expect some great force to come clean it up for us without any kind of accountability. And if we ever asked ourselves, I mean, imagine if there was one day, just one, and on that day, all the people of the world had to do inventory about themselves and their beliefs about the Creator, the Divine, their walk, other people's walk, what they believe about it, what they believe life is for, if they did inventory all day long and went deep in a meditative state first and asked humbly, that's a genuine prayer, your heart to the Divine, show me reality, what is expected of me at this time? How can I walk a human path that is more like a human being? We would see an enormous change the following days. And then we have room for infinite tools Mm. to get there, to sustain it, to help each other. And, you know, I love journaling. The concept of journaling is so profound to me because You know, most people think we have one brain, but we have three. We're tri-brained. And the act of journaling your deepest, deepest emotions, whether they're the darkest emotions or love-based emotions and full of light, it doesn't matter. When we journal deep, we go through survival brain, your limbic brain, where your emotions are, through your frontal lobe, your neocortex, and put it in order because writing. And language didn't happen till much later in our evolution. 
And I think that's a profound tool to get clear, like, what have I been experiencing? You know how early you were saying, you have to take a first step. You have to be in motion to get assistance. I think even journaling is a first step. Mm -hmm. Let's reflect. Am I happy? Am I happy in all the areas of my life? If I'm not, why? What's happening? What's the pattern? And what are my beliefs about that pattern? So I really love that as a reflective tool. And I also think the value of a friend is indispensable. Everything. It's everything. Yes. (laughs) That is a true friend. And that means they want your evolution. Hmm. They're as excited about your evolution as they are about their own. And it's their joy when you advance in your personal territories and your uh, societal territories and your financial territories and familial, you know, all your battles won. Like they are a mirror for you, but they're also a champion. Now, if you don't have a friend like that, then we should start looking within to be that to someone. If you can't have it, start by being it. Mm. I actually think that's why psychology has evolved so much, why we have so many different kinds of therapists. You know, we still have classic analysis. If you want to explore analyzing, Or you can find a tool-based therapist or someone very intuitive or somatic. Somatic. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that concept. Mm. Or movement therapy or Mm. art therapy. There's so much therapy. Mm -hmm. So we, we could start somewhere. If you don't resonate with it, move on. Yeah. What about you, Smishu? What's your favorite method of process? I just love meditation, Mm -hmm. guided meditation, because I always see things that I, in a new way or in a dream form or in an analogy that I would have never thought of on my own. And I love prayer, but I also love, if you don't mind sharing your, the process, the three-step process that you came up with, that's been something very, very helpful to me. Sure, Smishy. The threefold process, it comes from the series of books, the oneness model, so that people could always process some of the harder, deeper stuff without a therapist and just like go deep and go long and go hard until Mm -hmm. you start making some shifts. And you could also do it with a friend or a group if you keep it a sacred group where you don't share outside that circle. And so in the workbook, the process itself is identifying whatever is happening to you. And I noticed we all had this in common, that no matter what we were dealing with, we could always distill it in our experience as something that you ask yourself, is this a pain? Do I experience it as loss, disconnection, or is there a hidden agenda here? whether it's my hidden agenda or somebody else's, to keep me stuck where I am. You know, because for people who are in survival, change represents something they're frightened of. Mm -hmm. Or yourself, if I transform, am I being disloyal to my family? What if this threatens my relationship? What if the creator will not be happy with me if I'm no longer miserable and I'm not a victim? 
you know, it starts to unpack that. And then when you identify which of those it is, you go back into your earliest memory. Just keep bouncing back in time. My earliest memory of feeling that thing or experiencing this dynamic. And you will always come up with an earliest memory. It doesn't matter what the particular age is, but just stop where your earliest memory is and jot it down. And then ask yourself, what was my belief system at that time? The last stage of it, what you have to do to bring closure to a pattern, because you're going to the root of something, is to ask yourself, What did I need at that time Mm. that would have completely eliminated the need to develop this belief? And when you do that, you will feel a shift happen. You'll either feel a lightning in your emotions, your mind, your thought. Maybe you'll release tears. Maybe you'll start to breathe easier. Maybe your physical body, where you store it, will shift. You'll feel like some people tell me they burp after they they do the three-pull process. And some people sob. They just Mm. cry because they've been holding it there so long. And some people say like the back of their neck shifts or something they can click and they'll feel their bone shift because it's visceral how we carry ourselves through everything, you know, that we've dealt with. So that's the three-fold process. Sushi, I love that so much. I have been doing that process over and over and over again. It's helped me so much. And I'll just share something personal just because I feel like it might help people. But, you know, I just got married. I've only been married for a little over a year. And I'm like getting a PhD in (laughs) marriage. But it's such a beautiful thing because so much comes up for you where you really get to grow yourself because you have essentially a mirror that's kind of living with you all the time. And I remember Flea did something that really hurt me um, unconsciously. You know, I don't think it would have hurt anybody else, but for me, for some reason, it touched like a really deep, sensitive spot. And so I did your, I've been doing your threefold process over and over again. And in your words, it's really helped me to carve out that pain because it caused me such a deep pain. And then I went back, I was like, okay, I've identified this as a pain. And I went back to my earliest memory of it. And it's incredible because I've done it many times. And every time I land on a different memory, Mm. but the first one I did landed with an experience I had with my dad. And I was like, oh my God, because my dad died when I was 10. And I was like, this, I'm still dealing with dad stuff. Are you kidding me? This is crazy. (laughs) But it was this memory that I had with my dad where I felt the same exact pain that I was experiencing now with my husband. And I remember going back and thinking like, what did I need in that moment? And it was so hard for me to even identify the thing that I needed to make it better. But I did identify it and after I identified it, it is it like literally like rippled back and it made me put everything in order. Like, oh, this has nothing to do with flea. It's just what flea's instigating in me that's been there that it was only a matter of time before somebody 
instigated in me. And I'm so thankful that it happened within the protection and context of a marriage so that I could deal with it in this way. But even after I did it, it didn't quite heal it, which is why I've been doing it over and over again. And there's nothing like fully identifying it and dealing with it. So like you said, we can just be free. Because if you're so easily thrown off your course, how are you going to make any kind of impact or change in the world? That's something that you shared with me that's really, really resonated with me. And I'm so thankful I'm here talking to you so we can share with other people so that maybe it could help other people have a process. And I'm happy to share. It makes me feel such an incredible joy to think that it might be of use to like one more person, one more person can be free of something that's been like shackles, you know, around their life, holding them back. And thank you for sharing, by the way. I think when you share, it gives other people permission to become aware and not be ashamed. Mm. Because a lot of, we're not taught that relationships also need process. Mm. Most people think, oh, I got married. It's going to work out. We'll figure it out. Well, how? I mean, it's true, but what does that actually look like as you're sharing that you were hurt and that pain was a searing, life-stopping pain? You know, most people, what they do planetarily is they use some substance and self-medicate. That's what they do. They're uncomfortable in the place that they really feel is unforgivable. I don't know why I'm feeling this pain. I should be grateful. I'm married. I shouldn't have problems. I shouldn't. This is a lovely person. What's, gosh, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with you. The person, whether it was conscious or unconscious, has triggered a life long pain. And I love how you were describing yourself as having getting your PhD in marriage. I think marriage is actually like triple PhD material. I think it's higher learning to the power of pi. Because in a marriage, you're bound to trigger one another unconsciously, and you better have a lot of communication skills and with yourself so that it doesn't become unbearable and you have to leave it. You know, you'll have to evacuate (laughs) the program. (laughs) But also you work it in multiple directions because we don't realize, you know, if, if the pattern you inherited came from just your mom, that's so easy to clear out. This bad event happened once and now I have an issue with that event and I'm mad at my mom because of that one event. If you get to process it with her, I guarantee that the issue is gone. If you have honest exchange where you get to say, this is how I felt, tell me how you felt, how can we resolve it? If both are willing, there has to be a willingness. If a person is not willing, they have very very deep roots choking that, not freeing that, not allowing them. In fact, the one who cannot move on is the one who is deeply wounded and trapped somewhere else. So that process can be worked over and over and over. And the most surprising thing is it never gets old. Mm -hmm. It never gets boring and you never come up empty. Mm -hmm. And if you do, do it with a friend they'll find it. (laughs) 
they know you. It's so true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Smishy, how many times have you said something to me where I go, ding, the light goes on. I'm like, oh, that's what it was. Yeah. And I also think so many other tools are available, like people should be free. But the one thing they should know is that if it works, then that's the proof. It's the right tool for you. And if it stops working at a certain time, that doesn't mean it won't work again later. Maybe sometimes we have to give it a rest to a perspective or something more playful or more three-dimensional. Or I love this tool that my friends, um, Aaron Creter and Lisa Blecker and I created this game, um, Charms, a game of insight. And our friend Johnny Cornyn made the online version, which is free. You can just go to charmsthegame.com and then you can play it. And it's amazing. It's such a cool game because it lets you see where you fit into life. And the board is really what Aaron created this most exquisite. That board, it has the elements and directions and a sense of where you're at in life. And all you do is ask any question with your friends or a group, and then they answer it. You don't. And it's really, really so cool because you get to use somebody else's wisdom about you. Smishy, I'm so thankful that you think about humanity in this way to even create products like that with no agenda, just the real true intention of just trying to help people get into themselves. Well, Smishy, those of us who have ever suffered cannot bear for others to suffer. Mm. So I actually find it something that's the greatest gift to myself (laughs) when I think of something where I go, maybe this will work for somebody. (laughs) Don't you feel the same way? Yes. It's one of the most wonderful privileges. Well, we could talk about process and transformation forever, but I think that word transformation is maybe something we can further investigate in other conversations and with other people because it seems to me transformation is the word of the day living on planet earth. Well, and also accountability. I love Mm. that you brought that up because it's so important. It makes me think of Dr. Joy DeGruy and she's written this book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome and how she talks about how America's pathology is her denial in regards to racism and that, you know, we can't even acknowledge or take credit for it what happened with slavery. So how can we begin the healing process? There's no accountability. Yes. And I think that that's so big, again, with big societal world things, and then also individually, you can't really begin the work or even turn on and move the car without first being accountable in yourself for yourself. Truth. You're speaking a lot of truth. Smishy, thank you for taking me to church today and back. Smishy, thank you. (laughs) It's been a deep dive Mm -hmm. on the butterfly forecast today. Uh, I really hope that the listeners who have joined us feel that they're every bit a part of this process as we are. And uh, it's exciting to think that we are joined together through these discussions. Mm -hmm. That gives even more inspiration for us. Totally. 
Was mischi. Until next time. Well, until then. Bye. Bye, smishy love. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. Thank you.